Awesome. Thank you, Shana. Well, good morning. My name's Grant. I'm one of the pastors here at Vine. So good to be here. Uh, with you this morning, and you've joined us for the beginning, as Matt said, of a two-week series we have called uh, The Tsunami of Cheer, subtitle, The Sacred Ministry of Encouragement. Now, we've got that uh, title there and even the subtitle from a bigger article written by uh, an author, blogger, and pastor named Tim Challies, uh, who wrote an incredible article about two years ago about how we, as Christians, can actually walk alongside one another and encourage one another. And I would encourage you, as you head home um, this afternoon, to actually look that article up. You can just Google Tim Challey's Tsunami of Cheer. It's a great article. It's been ministering to me over the last few weeks. And in it, he says this. He says, uh, There's not many in this world who are at risk of drowning in an ocean of encouragement, of being swept away by a tsunami of cheer of being pulled under by great waves of comfort. Yet, there are many who suffer daily under the weight of discouragement. Thankfully, there is no end of opportunities to bring assistance in the weariness, the despondency, the discouragement of others. The sacred ministry of encouragement is a ministry for every Christian, a ministry that costs each of us little, but benefits others much. What Charlie's is saying there is that each one of us uh, in certain seasons of our lives suffers daily under the weight of discouragement. Uh, That is kind of partly what life is like, what life is about. And we can actually speak into one another's lives, encourage one another, build one another up in light of that. And so that's what we're doing over these next two weeks. Today we're looking at how we can actually navigate discouragement how we can respond to discouragement when we face it. And next week we have Matt speaking to us on, um, in light of that, how do we encourage one another? How do we draw alongside one another and build one another up in a world where we will face discouragement? Sound all right? People awake? Three people, some people nodding. Cool. Well, you know, we're going there whether you like it or not. So here we go. Join with me. We're going to pray. Ah, gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your holy word, grant that our hearts, freed from worldly affairs, may hear and understand your holy word with all diligence and faith, so that we might rightly discern your gracious will, cherish it and live by it with all earnestness, to your praise and honour, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, in 1947, uh, George Orwell wrote an essay which he called Leah Tolstoy and the Fool. And in it, he said these words. He said, most people get a fair amount of fun out of their lives. But on balance, life is suffering. And only the very young or the very foolish imagine otherwise. He's saying the experience of life, that part of the human condition is actually experiencing pain, and suffering and the discouragement and um, downheartedness that comes with that. He says, life as we know it is on balance suffering. And if you don't know that, if that's not your experience, well, either you're very young or you're very foolish. That's what he says. And I think many of us, um, whilst we might not completely resonate with that statement, um, life on balance is suffering, I think there's something that resonates with us there. That as we navigate life, we do bump into a number of discouragements. Uh, Maybe this morning, as Matt reminded you, 
that your long weekend will come to an end tomorrow evening. Maybe you felt discouraged. Maybe you felt disheartened. Um, or other more significant, bigger things weigh us down, right? We, uh, whether it's in family or the workplace, we experience breakdown of relationships and the pain that comes along with that. Uh, we experience um, the difficulties of realising our bodies and our minds don't always work the exact way that we'd like them to, whether we experience uh, mental health struggles or physical struggles. Uh, we experience this when we have to say goodbye too early to those that we love and cherish. Many other number of things in life cause us to experience pain and suffering and the discouragement that comes along with that. And many of you know this far greater than I do because you've been through a lot more than I have. So how do we deal with that? What do we do? <clears throat> well, um, what uh, George Orwell says next is actually a bit more interesting than what he says here. He says that ultimately it is the Christian attitude which is self-interested and hedonistic. Since the aim is always to get away from the painful struggle of earthly life and find eternal peace in some kind of heaven or nirvana. <clears throat> he says this morning that, well, in 1947, he said that the approach that Christians take to dealing with the pains of life is actually to escape them, is actually to run away from them and put our hopes in some kind of eternal, heavenly peace on Ivana. That is our worldview of dealing with discouragement. I'm going to deal with that a little bit. We're going to in, um, kind of engage with that a little bit later on. But um, I want to ask you, is that the way that you deal with discouragement here on earth? Do you have a method of how you might approach pain, suffering, and discouragement in life as it comes your way? Well, today, that's what we're digging into. We're going to be answering the question, how do you navigate discouragement? How do you respond to the discouragement that comes in life? And by the way, I'm going to kind of be using, um, speaking, using the term suffering, pain, discouragement interchangeably because I think uh, as we experience pain and suffering in life, those are the very things that actually cause us to feel discouraged. Those are the things that cause us to feel weighed down. So how do we deal with them? How do we navigate that? And I want to offer this morning that Psalm 42 and 43 actually offer us an incredibly reliable and trusted method that you could apply every single time you're feeling discouraged. Uh, this is the way that you can respond every single time you feel discouraged in life. Let's jump in. Um, Psalm 42 and 43, uh, two Psalms in the book of Psalms, and there's 150 different Psalms in the Bible and uh, John Calvin, the 16th century reformer, refers to the Psalms as a complete anatomy of the human soul. Isn't that a beautiful description? A complete anatomy of the human soul. And what he's saying there is that within the Psalms, we find the entire array of emotions that we might feel as, you know, as we live life on earth. And the Psalms and the people that write them give us kind of the words to express those emotions and actually give us the words and the thoughts to help us uh, not just express them, but to kind of navigate them and deal with them and respond to them. And in Psalm 42 and 43, we find the psalmist wrestling with discouragement and depression and responding to that. And we're looking at these two psalms together, by the way, uh, because it's believed by a bunch of people, uh, myself included, that these might actually just be one psalm altogether. 
So maybe there's actually only 149 Psalms in the book of Psalms. Maybe that's what's going on here. Uh, why I think that or why people think that, a um, couple of reasons. You might see in your Bible, if you've got it in front of you, which would be great for you to do that, to get your Bible out and actually um, either on your phone or on paper, see these words for yourself. I've got two footnotes at the beginning of both of these Psalms that say um, in many Hebrew manuscripts, Psalm 42 and 43 constitute one Psalm. Um, and we think that, um, not just because the Hebrew manuscripts kind of keep them together, but there's one title for the two Psalms. I believe every other psalm in the original language does have its own title, whereas um, Psalm 43 has no title. It just flows on from Psalm 42. And there's also three um, repeated refrains that we see across Psalm 42 and 43 that kind of uh, indicate to us that there is a relationship between these two psalms. And we'll kind of get to them in a little bit. Anyway, that's why we're treating these two as one psalm today. And in them, like I said, we will find a method of how to deal with discouragement, face uh, head on and to face it in life. And so as we jump into these two psalms, I want to kind of unpack a few different things. We're going to first see uh, the psalmist's situation, what's going on for him to cause him to write these words. And then we're going to look at how he responds. And I want to uh, offer to you this morning that the way that he responds is the way that we can respond in the face of discouragement too. We're going to see that he pours out his soul, he preaches to his soul, and he reorders his hopes. There you go. Flagging where we're heading. So um, what is the psalmist's situation? What is going on that causes him to write these words? Well, pick up with me from the very first verse of Psalm 42. He just dives straight in and says these words, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. The psalmist, as he opens up this psalm, it is evident that he is facing and experiencing spiritual drought, that he feels spiritually distant from God. He likens himself to an animal that is thirsty and sick by the bed of a river, panting, longing for just a few drops of water to quench their thirst, but remaining unsatisfied, remaining thirsty. And the psalmist uses that illustration, that analogy to say, God, I'm thirsty for you. My soul pants for you. But as we see throughout the psalm, uh, this, this, the writer seems distant from God spiritually. For him, it seems like God is far away. And for the writer of the psalm, God's just not far away spiritually. God feels far away physically. Uh, the, the people at the time that this psalm was written would worship God in the temple, yet um, the writer of this psalm is evidently away from the temple. We believe that um, the writer of the psalm was probably involved in like the worship band, like probably part of the worship team of the temple, uh, maybe didn't play acoustic guitar, but potentially sung or played the lyre or something like that. And that, um, that was part of how he worshipped God. He would, he would serve in the temple by being part of the choir by singing. And the way that we do church this day, these days, the way that we kind of approach church or come to church is something like this. You know, you might wake up, hop in your car, drive to Surrey Hills, um, drive around for 15 minutes looking for a car spot, um, consider just going home but then finding a spot, and then you find the spot, you hop out, you go and get a coffee, 
You come back, and if you're part of the, the 10 people that are here before church starts, you might not know this. There's a countdown. Um, we have a countdown before church starts. And for the 10 of us that are here, we watch it. Um, and then it gets to zero, and church starts. That's how we kick off church. Um, but for these guys, at the time that this psalm was written, when they would go to the temple, they would do things quite differently. Uh, in fact, they would enter church in what this psalm calls a festive throng. Check out verse um, 4 of Psalm 42. It says, How I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the Mighty One with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. The way that they would enter the temple is they would gather in the streets of Jerusalem and that they would march and dance and sing and praise God in the streets all together as they walked into the temple gates and entered the temple. And this man was probably part of the kind of choir that led that procession into the temple. <clears throat> It'd be a bit like if you or I next week at 10.30 met at Chemist Warehouse at the bottom of Crown Street and we marched up Crown Street together singing and dancing and praising God as we entered church together. Now, some of you are like, uh, I'm so relieved that is not my experience of coming to church. I can just chill out, grab a coffee and grab a seat. But that's what they would do. They would like march up Crown Street together, singing, praising God as they entered the temple. And the writer of this psalm no longer hears the beauty and the, feels the joy of hearing people around him singing and dancing. He no longer hears those voices washing over him as he approaches the temple. No, he's away from the temple. He's apart from the temple, feels away from God, probably living in exile. And his experience in light of that is he doesn't hear the sound of voices. He hears the sound of the roar of a waterfall. Check out verse 7 of Psalm 42. He says, Deep calls to deep. In the roar of your waterfalls, as your waves and breakers have swept over me. You see, this psalmist feeling far from God spiritually and physically, his experience of life at the time of writing this song is the experience of what feels like being crushed under the weight of a waterfall. The experience of just feeling drowned in life. He's not uh, feeling a tsunami of cheer. He is feeling a tsunami of discouragement in his life. And he just feels like life is like watching a waterfall roar over him, waves and breakers sweeping over him. That's what's going on for him. And then to top it all off, uh, lastly, not just, he's not just physically far from God, not just spiritually far from God. He's socially uh, apart from others. Verse 10, he says, My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me saying to me all day long, where is your God? Such is this man's experience of life that he feels distant from God and he is crying out, God, where are you in this? And then to make matters worse, his enemies come along and kind of just twist the knife a little bit and join in on his own self-talk and start to say to him, yeah, where is your God? Like, where is he? You're not near the temple, you're far from him and you're living out um, in such a place that you feel discouraged in life and they just start to pile on top of him and make fun of him and humiliate him and mock him and say, where is your God? Why hasn't he saved you yet? Why hasn't he rescued you? Why has he left you here? This is where this, this is kind of the place that this man writes this psalm from, a place of discouragement, a place of feeling disheartened and down. 
And your situation today is probably a little bit different to his. Uh, You probably aren't um, feeling homesick from Jerusalem. Maybe you are, um, but that's probably not many of our experience. Uh, You might not be missing the festive throng that enters into the temple gates of Jerusalem. But regardless, the the response that this man has to his situation um, gives us a beautiful and helpful response that we can um, we can do, that we can take in light of the discouragement that we face in life. So what does he do? Three things. He pours out his soul. He pours out his soul. Verse 4, he says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul. To put it differently, he actually just starts to get in touch with what's going on for him. He starts to get in touch with his feelings and emotions, and he starts to name them. He starts to say, this is what's going on for me in life right now. And some of us here this morning, we actually struggle with that. We actually struggle with sitting down and thinking, okay, what is going on for me in life in this present moment? And rather than naming our feelings, we actually seek to numb them. Uh, When we feel down, we feel disheartened, we feel discouraged, we go to the cupboard and we get out the comfort food and we seek to kind of squash down our negative emotions and feelings. Or maybe you turn on the TV and you binge Netflix. You just watch episode after episode to try and just get away from what's going on. Or maybe for you, you hop on the internet and you watch porn. Maybe you turn to drinking. Maybe you turn to drugs. Maybe you turn to seeking love and fulfillment in others on a Friday or Saturday night. Whatever it is, uh, for many of us, rather than naming our feelings, we actually seek first to numb them and squash them and put them down. But this psalmist, uh, the man that wrote this song, faces his feelings head on and names them. He says, this is what's going on for me right now. In verse 2, he says, my soul thirsts for the living God. Verse 3, he has a bit of a cry. He says, my tears have been my food day and night. That's a great way to respond to discouragement in life. He just pours out tears. Uh, He says in verse 5, my soul is downcast and disturbed. Such a strong emotion, a disturbed soul, but he names it. That's what's going on for me right now. My soul is disturbed. In verse 10 to 42, he says, My bones suffer mortal agony. He actually starts to sit down and name what's going on for him. He says, This is how I'm feeling right now. This is what's going on for me. And after he's named his feelings, he actually starts to tell God about how he's feeling about God. Uh, Verse 9. He says, God, why have you forgotten me? And then later on, in the beginning of uh, Psalm 43, verse 2, he says, why have you rejected me? Have you ever prayed that kind of prayer to God? Have you ever been that honest with God? Where you just said, God, I feel like you've rejected me. I feel like you've abandoned me. I feel like you've left me right now. But the psalmist obviously feels comfortable doing that in this psalm this morning. He feels okay to approach God and just be honest with him. And say, God, it feels like you're very far away. In fact, such is my discouragement that it feels like you've rejected me and abandoned me. And he just pours out his heart to God. And the encouragement to me in this, and I hope the encouragement to you, is that when you are feeling discouraged in life, you don't have to polish up all your thoughts. You don't have to sit down and work through all your emotions before you approach God Uh, in this polished up, refined state and say, God, this has been happening, but you know, I've kind of dealt with it a little bit and now I can approach you. Thanks for 
No, he just comes before God in the heat of the moment and with passionate, raw, unfiltered emotion, pours himself out. Says, God, this is how I feel about you. And the amazing thing is that God is a God that can take that. God's a big God. He's not going to be like put off by you telling him how you feel. He's not going to be put off or, um, you know, discouraged himself. He's not going to feel um, self-conscious if you say to him, God, I feel like you're far away. No, God can take it. God can handle it. In fact, God knows what you're going through. God sees your situation. And he can handle your frustration. He can handle your anger. He can handle what's going on for you. And so let me encourage you this morning. If you're in a place of discouragement, come before God and tell him what's going on for you. Tell him how you're feeling. Next time you feel discouraged, can I encourage you to name what's going on for you? Uh, if you're the creative type, you can write your own psalm. You might want to even just write this, these two psalms out in your own words. Uh, you might want to journal what's going on for you. You might want to sit down with someone that's a psychologist or a counsellor or a friend and, and get them to help you name what's going on for you. Name it and bring it before God. Come before him and say, God, this is how I'm feeling. I'm not very happy with you right now. Just be honest with him. Tell him what's going on for you. That's the first thing this psalmist does. He pours out his soul. He pours out his soul to God. But the amazing thing that he does is he doesn't just sit in negative thoughts and ruminate on them over and over and over again. He doesn't allow himself just to spiral down in this endless spiral of depression. He actually starts to preach to himself. We see the writer of this psalm preach to himself. He starts to talk to himself. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. Uh, he, Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a book on these two psalms, incredible book um, of how to deal with spiritual depression and discouragement. And he says this, uh, speaking of this very psalm, he says, the main trouble in the whole matter of depression is that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. Take the thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You haven't originated them, but they start talking to you and they bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment was this. Instead of allowing himself to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you downcast, O my soul? He asks. His soul has been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, soul, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. Now, that might seem a little bit paradoxical to you, right, at first reading. Like, what is he saying? That last line there, instead of allowing himself to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Like, isn't that the same thing, just said differently in two different ways? Like, what is this? how did he publish this book? Surely the editors should have picked this up and changed this. Now, what he's saying is um, we ought not just to allow the negative talk in our minds speak to us over and over and over again are the thoughts that originate with us in the morning that we don't really know how they got there or who put them there, that they just speak to us. He says, that's okay. But we actually ought to not just allow that narrative to run through our minds. And there becomes a time and a moment where we don't just name that. We actually start to talk to ourselves, And we start to remind ourselves of who God is, of what God has done, 
and what God promises to do in our life. And we remind ourselves of the certainties of the faith that we have. And we start to preach those things over ourselves. And we say to ourselves, hey, listen up. Let me talk to you. Let me tell you about who God is. And as we do that, we actually start to push back on these negative thoughts. We start to push back on the world around us. And we start to push back on the devil himself as we preach to ourselves the goodness of God. And we see the writer of this psalm do this. Check out verse 6. He begins by saying, my soul is downcast within me. That's his state. But then he says, therefore, what does he do with a downcast soul? He says, I will remember you. I will remember you, God. And then in verse 8, this is him preaching to himself. He says, by day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is with me. He's saying, God, you, you seem far away. I feel abandoned by you. I feel rejected by you. But I know that you're a good God. I know that you actually are near me. By day, you direct your love. By night, your song is with me. You are with me, God. And he preaches that to himself. He reminds himself of the goodness of God. He encourages himself from what he knows about who God is and speaks that over himself. And so I want to encourage you this morning to preach to yourself the goodness of God as you face discouragement. And can I encourage you that there is a wealth of Scripture that you have to preach to yourself when you're feeling discouraged and downcast. That as you mind the Bible, there is so many things that encourage you and uplift you promises that you can remind yourself of and speak over yourself. In this season for me, I've been speaking over myself, Hebrews 13 verse 5. God says, never will I leave you nor will I forsake you. That is true for you this morning. God will never leave you nor forsake you. He might feel far, but he's not. Never will I leave you nor forsake you. Or Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Will he or not also along with him graciously give us all things? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword separate us from the love of Christ? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let me encourage you this morning, preach the goodness of God over yourself. Remind yourself who he is, what he's done for you, and what he's promised to do in your life. Do whatever it takes. Write it on your mirror, the promises of God. Write some scripture up there. Put your phone background as promises of God to you. Tattoo it on your arm if you need to. Do what it takes to preach to yourself the goodness of God. As we face discouragement in our life, we can preach to our souls. We can pour out our souls. And lastly, we can reorder our hopes. We can reorder our hopes. Uh, the writer of this psalm, as he faces discouragement, at the beginning of verse, uh, sorry, Psalm 43, you might have seen it there, he actually does start to ask God to change his situation. He says, vindicate me, my God. Rescue me. Send me your light and your faithful care. Let them lead me. He asks God, God, my situation sucks and I'd like you to change it. Can you do something there? And that's a great thing to do. We can come before God and ask him that he would help us and deliver us. And I'll tell you what, as I read these two Psalms, I'll tell you how I'd love them to end. I'd love the Psalmist to finish up there and just go, and then you did vindicate me. 
and you did rescue me. And you sent your light and life got better and now I'm all sweet, so thank you, God. Like that is, honestly, truly, that is how I wish these Psalms end. That like God would just hear his prayer and change his circumstance. And when I'm in the midst of discouragement, that's honestly what I want to happen is for the situations around me to no longer be ones of discouragement and for life to get better and to just keep on going. That'd be awesome, right? But if you've lived longer than five minutes, you know that that is not really how life works. Maybe in the words of George Orwell, you're either very young or very foolish. Life is full of things that weigh us down and discourage us. And the amazing thing about these Psalms is that the writer of the Psalms, we see clearly that his hope actually isn't in his external situation or circumstances. His hope isn't tied up with his life changing. And there's no real indication that things do or have gotten better for him by the end of this psalm. But he says the same thing three times. The same thing three times. In Psalm 42, verse 5, in Psalm 42, verse 11, and in Psalm 43, verse 5, he says, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? And then he preaches this to himself. Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Put your hope in God. You see, his hope is not in his external circumstances. His hope is in God. And for some of us, the the goodness of God is actually correlated with the goodness of our circumstances or our life. But here the psalmist is saying, no, my hope is in you, God. You are my Savior, and I will praise you. You are my God. He has a hope in life that actually reaches outside of his circumstances and reaches into heaven. And so is what George Orwell says true? He says, Ultimately, it's the Christian attitude which is self-interested and hedonistic, since the aim is always to get away from the painful struggle of earthly life and find eternal peace in some kind of heaven or nirvana. Is that true? Is that our experience as Christians? Is that how we ought to respond to the discouragements that we face, is to get away from the painful struggle of earthly life? In a way, I want to agree with him there. Like, yeah. Uh, If... If you're going to call me a hedonist because my hope is in heaven and I'm looking forward to a place where there will be eternal peace, then I will own that title. Call me a hedonist. Like, that is me. I am looking forward to the day that will come when there will be no painful struggle in life. I'm looking forward to the day where I will be in heaven with God and there will be no pain or suffering or mourning. Yeah, that is my That is one of my hopes in this life. And I look forward to that. And I hope you do too. But I don't think it's fair to say that the Christian experience of one is one of getting away from the painful struggle of earthly life. That's not what we do. We don't just try and flee from the painful struggle of earthly life. And in the remainder of our time, I want to share with you how hope offers uh, a better way. How hope offers a better way. You see, I want to offer you today that we can have hope in the midst of our discouragements because God himself experienced this psalm so that we might have hope for the future where there will be eternal peace, but also hope that God might use our sufferings and discouragements right now in this moment. Let me unpack that for you. I hope that makes sense. See, we have hope in the face, in the midst of our discouragements right now 
because God himself experienced this psalm. You see, I don't think it's fair to say that the Christian approach, as Orwell says, is to get away from the painful struggle of earthly life because that's not how God responded to the painful struggle of earthly life. When, when God looked down upon the world and he saw pain and suffering and sin and brokenness, he didn't try and get away from it. Now, he drew near to it. In fact, the Bible says that God took on flesh in Jesus Christ and stepped foot on this world. Isaiah 53, in predicting uh, Jesus and him coming to earth, says he, he didn't get away from our griefs and sorrows. He didn't get away from uh, the pains of earthly life. No, it says he bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. That's what Jesus did. You see, just as the psalmist had tears for food day and night, as Jesus stepped foot on earth and walked around, he wept at the brokenness of this world. He wept at the situation, at death and disappointments in life. Just as the psalmist felt abandoned by God, abandoned by others, sorry. So, this, so Jesus felt abandoned by others. Jesus, as he walked on earth as in his final days, all his friends and followers, followers deserted him, fled from him. In fact, trading him in for a bag of silver. Jesus was abandoned by others. Just as the psalmist feels his bones are broken and is suffering mortal agony as his foes taunt him, Jesus on the cross literally suffered mortal agony as he was pierced through his hands and feet, taking on our sin. Just as the the psalmist felt the pain of his foes mocking him and taunting him, so Jesus on the cross had his enemies taunting him and mocking him. And just as the psalmist cries out to God, why have you forgotten me? Why have you rejected me? Jesus on the cross cries out, God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? (laughs) Jesus is no stranger to suffering. Jesus didn't see the pains and the struggles of this world and flee from them. No, he drew near to them. He embraced them. Rebecca McLaughlin captures this so beautifully as she says these words. She says, In Jesus we find the one person who knows all our heartache and all our pain. There is no wound of ours he cannot touch. You see, there is nothing, nothing in the breadth of human experience that we will come across in this life that Jesus hasn't come across himself. That there is no one else in the world that quite understands what it's like to be going through what you're going through in times of discouragement than Jesus himself. There is no wound he cannot touch. We can have hope in the discouragement of life because we know that we worship a God that is that is experienced it himself. He knows what we're going through. And we have hope that he, that he did that, not just to experience them, but actually to bring about a better future. That Jesus, after dying on the cross, didn't just stay dead and was buried, and that was kind of the end of it, like a nice story. No, on the third day, we know he rose again from the dead, and then he ascended into heaven. And we have hope in that, because we know that death for us will not be the end, like it wasn't for Jesus. But one day, on the last day, we will rise again, and we will be in heaven with him where he is right now. And at the end of the Bible, in Revelation, it it talks about how when the things of this world are done, Jesus himself will wipe away every 
tear from the eyes of those that have experienced loss, that experienced pain, relational breakdown, experienced abuse and trauma, that Jesus will see you and Jesus will see your tears and with compassion and gentleness, he will wipe away each one. We have hope in that day that is coming that we will one day be in a place where there will be no more tears and there will be no more discouragement. And lastly, we have hope because we know that Jesus has been through what we've been through. We know that Jesus has prepared a future for us where there will be no suffering. But also we have hope that our earthly pain and struggles aren't futile. They're not just something that we go through and, and actually we ought to try and escape or get away from. No, there's something that God uses. God actually uses the very things that feel like they're crushing us for our own good. Do you see it in the, in the psalm there in verse uh, 5 of Psalm 42? No, sorry, verse 7 of 42. It says, deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. He, he feels crushed. Feels like he's drowning, being held under. But then he says, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. He recognizes the complexity that, God, you're in control. That the things that I'm experiencing and feeling right now, actually, like, you're using them. They're your waves and your breakers, and you're using them for my good. And the amazing thing that we see in this psalm is that this man's discouragement, his experiences in life, don't drive him away from God. They actually draw him near to God. That actually this man is better off spiritually at the end of the psalm than he was at the start. That God has actually used the discouragement that he's facing and feeling to draw him closer to God, to depend on God and spiritually enrich him. You see, if one of the reasons why Jesus came to earth was actually so that we might be in relationship with him, so that we might find him, surely all things in life ought to lead us in that direction, even suffering itself. That even suffering has a purpose, even discouragement and pain have a purpose. Give us a hope in knowing that God is using these things for our good. Uh, we may not like them, and I'm not offering this morning to you that you ought to like them. Um, they do suck, and they are painful. But I'm also offering you hope that your situation might not get better. It might not change tomorrow. And that's okay, because our hope isn't in our external circumstances. They're in God, a God who is good, and a God who will use these things for us. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, so suffering is at the very heart of the Christian faith. It is not only the way Christ became like and redeemed us, but it is one of the main ways we become like Him and experience His redemption. And that means that our suffering, despite its painfulness, is also filled with purpose and usefulness. So I want to encourage you this morning, whatever you're going through, or next time you, you bump into discouragement, whatever you're going through, don't, don't let it be something which drives you away from God, but in it, in the complexity of it, draw near to God and hold on to the hope that you have in Him. In the face of discouragement, we can pour out our soul, preach to ourselves, and we can reorder our hopes, remind ourselves of where our true hope is. 
And I want to invite the band up. These guys are going to lead us in song. And I want to encourage you that that can actually start right now. That in this very moment, you can use this opportunity to to pour out your soul to God. You can use this moment to, to preach to yourself. And you can use this moment to remind yourself, to reorder your hopes and where your hope is placed. We're going to sing a song uh, written uh, a while ago called It Is Well With My Soul. And you might hear those words and go, it is well with my soul and go, well, maybe for you, but not for me. <laughs> That's not my situation right now. Uh, but this, this song, It Is Well With My Soul, was written by a man named Horatio Spafford, who himself was not indifferent to discouragement. In fact, um, he lost a whole bunch of his possessions and his business to a fire. And then shortly after, he lost his three daughters um, to a shipwreck. And as he sits down to uh, pour out his soul, to process his emotions, he writes this very song. And he writes the words, It is well with my soul. I think in this song we see Horatio Spafford pouring out his soul to God, preaching to himself about the goodness of God and reminding himself of where his hope is. And so I encourage you right now that you can do that very thing in this moment. Vine Church, use this opportunity. Pour out your soul, preach to yourself and remind yourself where your hope is. Can you stand with me and join with me as we sing?